welcome to the Spark Plug Podcast, a podcast for catalysts. I'm Josh Bister. So what exactly is a catalyst? Catalysts are people who take in a lot of data, quickly connect the dots, are able to see the potential for significant positive change, and are driven to take action. We come from all different walks of life, work in various fields, and find our fire in solving big, wicked problems. From design thinking to strategic doing to rejuvenation practices and more, there are a lot of tools at the Catalyst's disposal. There is an entire universe of brilliant people, ideas, and methods that we may find applicable when tackling those big, wicked problems. And that is exactly why we have created the Spark Plug podcast. It's a way for you to take a moment, listen in on some deeply thought-provoking material, and dive back into your day with some fresh perspectives that we hope will keep your fire burning. And with that, I want to jump into our very first episode, an interview with Tracy Lovejoy and Shannon Lucas, co-CEOs of Catalyst Constellations. Tracy and Shannon are at the heart of the Catalyst movement and have dedicated years to research and work in this field. We were thrilled to get the opportunity to interview these brilliant women, and we hope you find just as much value in this conversation as we did, if not more. Hello, Tracy and Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm Josh Fister, and I am extremely excited to have um, both of you here for the very first interview for the Spark Plug podcast. And with me is, of course, my co-host, Allie Gillen. Hey, guys. I'm. Thank you so much for doing this with us. I'm very excited to hear more about your book and the opportunities that you have coming. Thank you for it's having us. Here. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you do? Absolutely. This is Tracy. And in talking about myself, what I've come to realize is there's this thread that I can kind of go back to childhood of people being able to tune into me and me into them. I didn't realize that this was going to become such a big thing, obviously, until I was much older. Um, but let me connect those dots. So that curiosity and that that leaning into people led me into a career of research. And so my background was in research. But I found once I was working in corporate America, what I loved most was getting back to that connecting directly to the person in front of me, rather than going out and studying people. And this led me to love managing people, managing teams. And then in 2010, I stumbled upon coaching and realized very, very quickly that this was my calling and it connected those dots all the way back to childhood. And so I left corporate America in 2013 to start my own coaching and consulting business. But I, I still stay a researcher, right? It's part of the fabric of who I am. And so in 2015, started doing research with catalysts uh, that really brings us into the beginning of the book. And Shannon and I will talk more about that soon. So my identities today, in addition to being co-CEO with Shannon, are still that of coach and researcher. On the personal side, I uh, have been with my spouse for 24 years. I have two kids that are my favorite rejuvenation, my favorite activity of all time. Our house is always chaos. We have five pets at the moment, and that's kind of a, a rotating number at all times. I live in Seattle, Washington, in that top left corner of the U.S., um, and I love to be out in the sunshine, which is kind of funny that I've chosen to live in Seattle. And this is Shannon. Uh, I am. I have the pleasure of being Tracy's co-CEO, which makes me immensely grateful every day. 
I would describe myself as a lifelong catalyst and adrenaline junkie. Um, I've spent about, and those two I think are probably connected. I spent the past 20 years uh, working in startups, working in corporates, launching my own companies, uh, and focusing on driving innovation into some of the world's largest companies. I'd say for better or worse, I'm a hyper catalyst and we can talk about the what the catalyst scale sort of looks like, but I have enough scars and bruises um, that I'm happy to share those with other catalysts so that hopefully they can avoid some of the same mistakes. On a personal note, I was a longtime single mom. Uh, my son Galileo is 19 and in college, and my partner now has uh, five boys. So I have a lot of masculine energy in my house, one male cat and the one princess girl cat. Wow. So you both have a uh, house full of animals. Indeed. <laughs> And that's, that's what that's, we call the teenage boys. Yes, that's that's fantastic. Um, something that you both mentioned and something that we'll get to here in a moment is um, being a catalyst. And I want to talk about what being a catalyst is But before we get there. Uh, you are co-CEOs of Catalyst Constellations. Tell us a little bit more about Catalyst Constellations. Well, you'll find out more in a second about what it means to be a catalyst, but it's this group of people uh, who are, we can at least say, wicked change agents. And Tracy and I came together sort of out of a recognized sort of need of what this community uh, was looking for, as well as our own personal passion in supporting these wicked change agents. Today, Catalyst Constellation support them, supports the Catalyst pretty holistically, so both individually and within large organizations. I think sort of the short answer is, as Tracy was doing the research about what it meant to be a Catalyst, I had been collecting, sort of unbeknownst to me at the time, a group of Catalysts in what I called the Global Entrepreneur Salon. And we had this joint recognition that one of the biggest challenges facing Catalysts was burnout. So our first steps actually were um, providing retreats where this community could focus on clarifying their vision, importantly connecting with other catalysts and just generally rejuvenating. But as we progressed, we heard from catalysts that they strongly desired even more support, especially once they self-identified as catalysts. So we've since created a global online community. Uh, we offer courses on that online community to support catalysts on their personal journeys. And all of that, of, of course, is in addition to our coaching, mentoring, and corporate organizational consulting. That, that's incredible. So you, um, you mostly provide a, a network, kind of like a home base for a catalyst. So what exactly is a catalyst? The, the dictionary definition, Allie, of a catalyst is a person, thing, or event that quickly causes change or action. And so as we translate that into the change makers among us, and as we look at what actually binds us, those of us that self-identify, we see a group of people who take in lots of information. They're connecting dots between that information subconsciously and moving that into opportunity and ideas and visions that create positive change around them. And even more than that, right, catalysts are building the vision and moving into action. We have a very purpose-led drive to actually manifest the ways that we see that the world around us can be better. Wow, that that sounds 
that kind of sounds like a like a type of rare person that you wouldn't see all the time. So is this something that you train or something that you're born to be? This is a wonderful question that we don't know the answer to yet. We haven't done the research to absolutely say uh, that people are born a catalyst or there's a moment in time that we could choose it or we become it or there's something that happens to us, an experience that kind of spurs it in us. Our sense right now from, from most of the people that we've worked with is that they identify these traits from childhood. So a hypothesis is maybe we're born this way, uh, but we don't know for sure, Allie. Fascinating. I would say that we do call them unicorns, though. Well, there's a <laughs> fair few of us out there in each organization. They tend to be the standout unicorn. Wicked changing agent unicorn. I love it. I'm going to add that to my resume. <laughs> I love that. So one of the things that you mentioned in your description there, Tracy, was that people self-identify as a catalyst. Um, and I guess that gets me thinking a little bit more about awareness of being a catalyst, right? Uh, you can self-identify, sure, but how do you actually know that you are one? Yeah, well, we have a set of questions that people can ask themselves to help really lean in and say, oh my gosh, that absolutely describes me. Also, you can read the book and you can, you know, kind of get that sense of, oh my goodness, I've been waiting for this, this sense of operating manual and how to really sustainably be a change maker in the world. There's no definitive that we've created that says you are or you are not. And one of the reasons for that is people's relationship to this notion of being a catalyst. We definitely see change over time. And Shannon and I have no desire to create a sense of, you know, in crowd or out crowd. And when we come across people, we do find that pretty quickly they'll say something like, oh, that may not be me, but wow, that's my spouse. Or, oh, I definitely work with that person. Or, oh my goodness, you have just helped describe me in a way that no one has really ever seen me before. Hmm. Now, that leads me, I guess, to the next question, uh, just in that space is with the catalysts that you've met and the research that you've done, what type of differences do you see across generations? Um, perhaps the way that people are brought up uh, might impact the, the way that they think about things and the way that they approach change or the way that they try to solve problems. So from a generational perspective or even across personality types, what are some of the big aha moments that I guess you've had over time when talking to the network of catalysts that you've met so far? To this particular question of kind of what are the differences in the ahas, I think the, the deepest aha is how much more similar we are than we are different. No matter what industry we've been in, no matter what age we are, it's this, this, the best way I can talk about it is almost for me, a feeling of vibration that we, we hum in a way that is so liberating when you're in a room together, all with catalysts, like some of the shackles that bind us in being able to dream big and, and put things out there and not have someone in the room say, yeah, but, or, oh, we've done it and we've failed to have a whole group of people that yes, and you and help you build is really new when we get a room, you know, a room together of catalysts, no matter the differences of folks. The biggest difference I'd say that we see 
in a, in a single room of, of generations is simply experience, right? So, you know, people who are in their 60s and have been leading a catalytic life forever, you know, at that point, they've they've learned more tr- tricks of the trade, right? Some of the, the things that we point out in the book, they've already adopted and made their own versus someone maybe in their 20s that's just coming to terms with this, maybe beginning to be called a disruptor, not quite sure that they've had enough that they've done that they can claim being a catalyst. And so that's, I think, the, a big difference. You know, somebody that's listening to this for the first time, and and this is their first exposure to the whole notion of uh, people being catalysts, right? Uh, They might say, "Mm, just those people sound like real go-getters, right? What would you say is the difference between your traditional go-getter and a catalyst? I love that question. Thanks, Josh. So I guess I would would liken a go-getter to a rectangle and a catalyst to a square. Absolutely all catalysts are go-getters, right? It's definitional if I have a vision and I move into action, just like all squares are rectangles. But not all go-getters, not all rectangles are squares, not all go-getters are catalysts. Because you can be someone who gets up and, and, and does things, but it doesn't mean you set the vision to make the world around you better. It doesn't mean that you see yourselves at, at your, see yourself as an innovator or that you really have this purpose-led feeling to transform things around you for the better. I would just add on to that too. And sort of going back to your last question about the different types of people and Tracy's response about where they are sort of in their career is that there's a, there's a nuance of, you know, when catalysts are playing sort of big and you have that strong overlap of being a go-getter and making kind of, you know, massive impact even, it can be very intimidating for catalysts early on in their career to the point that they can even question their catalyticness. There's a woman in our, a woman in our network named Chelsea Glasson, who, when she first encountered Tracy and came to the retreat, was really sitting with the question like, well, I'm creating change in my swim lane, but is it big enough? And, um, the answer about Chelsea's being catalytic and being a catalyst is 100%. And she has gone on to fight for pregnancy discrimination against Google. She's changed the laws in Washington state, and she's now about to launch something very unique that the world needs. So I think it's just important to provide the context for you know early, early stage catalysts. There's also an interesting uh, nuance around introverts and extrovert catalysts. So uh, when the introverts in the first cohort kind of like sat in the room and looked at all these extroverts, a lot of them were questioning. And so we finally actually called it out into the room and asked all of the introverts in the room to raise their hand. And it turned out to be about 50%. Uh, So I think it's important that we can contextualize that catalysts do come in lots of sort of shapes and flavors and variations. Well, that's really, really interesting. I just um, as you were describing that, I'm picturing it in my mind, a room full of, of catalytic people, right? And half are extroverts, half are introverts. And I'm guessing they probably started to pool themselves together um, based upon their personality types. Is that fair? Well, I we kinda, don't. Yeah, you go, Shan. Yeah, I, we kind of don't let that happen. <laughs> so um, Tracy and I pay a lot of attention to how we facilitate in the room um, and the energy that people need. And the I would say what happened what happens through a lot of our events and not just the retreats is we deconstruct a lot of the walls and self-narratives that people bring into the room. 
we do that by holding and creating a safe space for people, which allows people to meet in different ways than they would have normally met before. The power of co-creation between catalysts of all kinds is incredibly uh accelerant. It's, a, it's an incredible accelerant. Uh, catalysts will either, whether they're introverts or extroverts, when they get into the co-creative space, will encourage each other to dream bigger. Um, so no, we didn't see a quiet little corner of introverts and a, and a loud sort of side of the coffee table over the extroverts. We definitely saw them mixing up and supporting each other. We did see it though, Josh, at the end of the day. <laughs> that you know the introverts were going to were bed exhausted <laughs> and needed some alone time yeah uh, but they were as engaged because it like i said when you have a group of people that finally feel liberated and and, and held up and that there's people that keep up and are going to help them dream bigger oh yeah. introvert extrovert young old male female finance innovation like you're in Hmm. You're absolutely in. But yeah, come dinner time, we had several. Is it okay if I grab a plate and go back to my room now? <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. That's awesome. I would say, sorry, what, there's one more funny point about that, actually, which is for the extroverts, because the extroverts, we, we weave in, as you guys know, a lot of rejuvenation practices throughout our experiences. And I think that was almost as profoundly transformational for the extroverts as sort of the introverts seeing themselves as being, you know, in the, in the same world or operating in similar ways to the extroverts, because the extroverts, actually, we cultivated solo time, quiet solo time for them. And that was profound and scary for some of them. And there was, there were multiple people have had epiphanies like, I need more of that in my life. It's not my go-to, but it's where I can ruminate more deeply. It actually is a recharge that I didn't actually recognize beforehand that I really needed in my life. And I'm sure that that had a major impact on them afterwards. A hundred percent. Absolutely. So a couple of things that y'all mentioned there, I think are great segues into the book. Um, so you mentioned Chelsea, Chelsea is mentioned in the book and her story. Uh, you also talked um, just now about rejuvenation, which plays a major theme throughout the entire book. That book is move fast, break shit, burnout. Uh, now, Ali and I have both had the opportunity to read this book. Absolutely fantastic. A lot of very wonderful ideas, concepts, directions, as you said, a playbook, uh, for helping folks that are starting to realize, hey, this is how I think, right? To move folks through that journey and to help them by providing them with some tools and, and some new um, frames of reference. So uh, really excited to, to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but first, tell us a little bit about the title, Move Fast, Break Shit, Burnout. What does that title mean to you? Well, of course, we can't talk about that title without talking about sort of the origination in Silicon Valley of that sort of level of thinking. And you know, we've seen how start as a starting point, moving fast and breaking shit probably doesn't always get you the best outcomes. So there is a nod to that, but it's also a commentary on just how we are as catalysts if we aren't living an intentional life. Uh, we'll talk more sort of about the catalyst formula and how we operate, but the essence is, is that we sometimes move so fast that we don't take the time to bring people along. And when we don't bring people along and we continue to try and make the change, we can end up breaking shit without intentionality. Like not, you know, some breaking shit is okay, but not if you're not doing it intentionally. 
And then when we do that, we're just creating all this friction in the system that ultimately leads to burnout. So really the catalyst guide to working well is meant to be the antidote to us moving fast, breaking shit and burning out without intentionality. Now I will say on the point of burnout, because I think it's an important point. And as I said earlier, it was one of the first common starting points that launched this company. Um, but we don't promise that Catalyst can't, that we can stop from burning out. We have an energy cycle and we push so hard that it's almost inevitable, but we have met some exceptional catalysts who have such a deep routine of rejuvenation that they've been able to at least moderate and minimize the burnout. So you mentioned it, it's kind of like a, a cycle, the way that the Catalyst goes through um, making change or tracking big projects. So uh, what what is that formula and how do you amplify highs and minimize lows with something like that? It really is the question for me. <laughs> um, having gone through sort of wicked versions of that catalyst journey myself, and I mentioned sort of, you know, the scars and the bruises that I have. The catalyst journey came from Tracy's data and from my lived experience, which talks about first and foremost, we start our catalyst journey by sinking our teeth into these big juicy problems. And when we're doing that dot connecting and sensing, it's like a state of euphoria for us. We're starting to feel something that needs to emerge, something that could be better, something that needs to be changed. Um, and it's almost a palpable physical sense of euphoria. We can sustain that through the point at which we're starting to coalesce what needs to emerge into a vision. But in that process of the euphoria and trying to figure it out and having all of the conversations and doing all the research, we can start to leave behind some of our normal routines of rejuvenation, whether that's, you know, wine with your friends or going on a hike or regular yoga practice. And we don't notice it in those earliest stages because we are feeling so high about, you know, what we are sensing into at that particular moment. As we start to move from the visioning that Tracy mentioned into the action that's definitional to catalysts, particularly when we're in large organizations, but even for entrepreneurs, we go through this phase that we call orchestrating. It's like getting you know, everyone on board, whether that's your customers or your vendors or your partners or your organization to help you manifest that vision. And again, here is where our sort of blind spots can really um, accelerate our own downfall because this isn't a spot that catalysts love. It's like, how many times do I have to repeat the vision to get you on board? How many times do we need to sit down and talk about what you're going to need to do differently tomorrow than you are today to help manifest this vision? And because it's not sort of our strong suit for, for most catalysts, it can start to wear on our energy. But even in those early days of orchestrating, we're still like, if you ask us, we're still having a good time because we're starting to see the vision manifest into reality. We're starting to see the first steps that other people are like, yeah, I'm bought into that and I'm going to help you on the way. Sort of by definition, change causes resistance. There's a lot of literature out there. And so at some point in that change process, we are very, very likely to encounter resistance. Um, if we're not, if we're not intentional about bringing people along or how we're bringing people along in that resistance, it can actually shift from people attacking the idea and the change to people attacking the change agent, us individually. And we can start to internalize that. So you can imagine during that whole resistance phase of our journey, our energy is getting lower and lower. We're getting more and more demoralized. It's getting harder and harder to get out of bed. 
at some point, not for all catalysts in every situation, but trauma is a very common occurrence in the workplace because we do often become the lightning rod for the organizational resistance to change. We sometimes call this sort of the corporate immune response system. We are the little virus that then needs to be attacked and the organization needs to defend from that change. And so you know, ultimately we lead to burnout. Like you just, you know, you should get up and go to yoga. You know, you should do something to recharge your battery, but like, it's just too hard those days. And you're like, I can't even go to work. So that's the unintentional sort of lived catalyst journey. Our hope is that, and this is why we wrote the book. Look, if you know that that's sort of your default mode of operation, there are ways that you can moderate that. And so you're, it might take longer. We might move less fast. We might break less shit, but we also might burn out less and the impact might be less to us personally. We have a saying that a burnt out catalyst creates no change at all catalysts often won't lean into the rejuvenation part that we talk about if we only talk about it for themselves, but they will understand it in context of, oh, I'm not going to be able to create the change I want to see. That's what it's going to take for me to be successful. And so that's where we start to see the new habits forming. That's a little bit funny that you have to emphasize the change and its impact before someone fully leans into the rejuvenation. So you uh, mentioned this catalyst formula, but at times it kind of sounds like design thinking or agile development. What's really the difference between uh, the catalyst formula and other ways of thinking? Allie, you, yes, exactly. That's what it is. So design thinking, agile development, scientific method, action learning, right? These are all different implementations of a fundamental process of have an idea that has a hypothesis, take a step of action, and then get the feedback and iterate based on what you learn. So what we've done is just kind of boil that down because what we see in working with catalysts and researching catalysts is that that is at the heart of how they work. And so it's interesting when you begin to see what types of jobs do catalysts naturally go toward, we see pretty high incidence in roles that are using processes just like you're talking about. We see a lot of researchers, a lot of designers, a lot of innovators working in tech and you know, things like Agile because we find that these processes match how they are intuitively operating in their world anyway. So I love that you saw that corollary. That's exactly right. It's a, it's at the heart of how we operate in the world. With with maybe a, perhaps a more of a focus on an overarching rejuvenation at some point to get that energy back, right? Well, that's what we, that's, you know, to Shannon's point of the catalyst journey and burnout, that's what we're advocating that we need to add with intentionality because in the research, we did find that that was not necessarily an intuitive piece to a catalyst's life, right? That we tend to be so externally focused on making positive change that one of our many blind spots, and there are many, is actually putting ourselves into the vision of what we're building toward in the future. Something that I want to touch on here real quick, and and this is something that both Tracy and Shannon, you mentioned, is the notion of change and resistance. And you bring this up in the book, and, and I wanted to, to just ask briefly, 
What's the difference between change and innovation? Because what it seems like today is that everything's all about digital transformation and innovation and so on and so forth. And everyone embraces that idea. But when it comes time to actually let the rubber meet the road and actual change to happen, that's where you start to experience resistance. So talk to us a little bit about what you've found on you know innovation versus change and and how that's impacting these catalysts and, and the people around them. So I'll start off by saying I think it's I think it's great that um, from where you're sitting that everyone is on board with innovation. I don't know that that's my lived experience. I wish that that were true. Um, but if even in the situations where people are professing to be okay with innovation, I think that there's a perception uh, or a misperception that doesn't account when people are okay with that, what they are not taking into account is actually like how much they personally or other humans in the organization are going to have to actually change in order to innovate. It's something I was just saying to Tracy today, actually. Um, I mean, being a hyper catalyst and I've been having a lot of conversations lately. And one of the things that I am sensing that is super emergent right now is the set that, that exact question which is companies say that they're okay with innovation or being on the cutting edge or whatever it is, but they forget that humans are actually involved with that. So I've become obsessed with how do we, cause it has to start with leadership. So how do we get leaders to understand the personal change that they have to embrace that will then you know, lay the foundations for the organizational shift that also needs to take place. And I think those, there's some pretty basic things in Google, you know, Google did a really interesting study with their Aristotle project where they were looking at high performance teams um, and they came down with five things, but the first thing on their list was psychological safety as an example. And one of the biggest chasms that innovation teams have to bridge is the ability to bring the divergent thinking safely back into the organization. And that chasm is usually where things go to die. That disconnect is usually where the innovators or the catalysts get burnt out because that's that moment that I'm talking to you. It's like they get sent on this like magical hero's quest. Go, go forth and talk to our customers and find out what we need to do to change ourselves and they come back with the answer and they probably didn't even have uh, an opinion or an objective in this. It's like, this is what the data says. We also have a lot of data, user researchers, data people, ethnographers, et cetera, who are catalysts. Come back. This is what the data says. And it's not what the organization wants to hear because it means that they're going to need to change and change is very uncomfortable. Um, so I think you're asking exactly the right question. Like from an organizational perspective, this is the question is, why are you setting these people up to come back to only be set up for failure because you're not willing to do the personal and organizational work to make change possible? That's, mm -hmm. that's really powerful. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for diving into that, Shannon. That was um, not an easy question to answer. And, and I can't say any more than I, I, I agree with your perspective there. One thing that you brought up that I think is very important is uh, psychological safety. <clears throat> and 
What's interesting for me on this, and it's, it takes me back to a, a video I was watching here recently of Gordon Ramsay, and somebody was <laughs> interviewing him. Talking, Unpsychologically safe. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and so, and so, and so, and, and so I'm playing devil's advocate here, right? Because uh, he was asked, what was it like um, as a young chef uh, coming up in these kitchens under, you know, some of the most prolific uh, chefs of all time, right? In in France and and UK and and you know, uh, and his response was, you know, I had effing ducks flying over my head and with and raviolis, and the only thing the ducks were missing were the feathers. And uh, you know, you're constantly getting screamed at and yelled at. But you know what? That makes your that gives you thick skin. And he said, trust me, the thicker your skin, the higher you'll go. So where do we find that balance between Psychological psychological safety and creating thick skin and and you know having the resistance uh, you know within yourself right the ability to um, make it through some of those tough times. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, first, I'll just say that I think it's um, sort of it's a false premise to say that in order to get good, you need to be abused. I mean, I just don't buy into that fundamentally. And I think um, the type of sensing that we need to be able to do in organizations or as individuals, humans right now, requires a deep sense of empathy and compassion and stillness to listen to what really needs to happen. And so I would say, I think we need to change how organizations operate and really on a fundamental basis, how we treat each other as humans. I mean, one of the things that people don't like to talk about is how we bring our family dynamics into organizations. And until we can start sort of connecting on really deep human levels, we will continue to bring all the different sort of traumas and, you know, abusive family systems or not abusive family systems, but all of that stuff into the workplace. Um, so how do we develop resiliency is a good question, though, because the world is not right now a hugely uh, empathetic and compassionate place. And so I think this is a question that we can direct back to the catalyst to start with, at least for themselves, because right now that's all we can control. And this is where we come back to rejuvenation and mindfulness. And one of the things that I am absolutely most convinced of that I want the whole world to have, but particularly catalyst is self-compassion. When we develop skills of mindfulness, when we're attacked and we can feel our you know, neurological system responding on a physiological level, and we can sense that faster than not, we can actually create some spaciousness for how we choose to respond. And we can say, yeah, I just got attacked in that meeting because they thought that that idea was divergent, but it allows us the spaciousness, even if they were actually verbally attacking us to understand, take a step back and understand what the context is. They're afraid. They're afraid of change. Maybe I didn't do enough um, to bring them along to this point. You know, there's a lot more spaciousness that you can get to 
create the distance so that those things don't sit in our souls deeply and we can actually develop, I would prefer to say resiliency than thick skin. I want to still have my thin skin so that I can have all my sensing and compassion and feeling capabilities. But for a long time, I internalized all of that negative feedback that I got as it being my fault. And what we want to tell Catalyst is, can we do things better? Can we learn what our blind spots are and how to slow down and you know not break shit without meaning to? Sure. And you're doing your best. Like there hasn't been an operating manual to now. I didn't have a network of catalysts to support me. I didn't even know what it meant to be a catalyst until now. I really like the idea that mindfulness is the key to resiliency and not necessarily thick skin. Mm. Thank you. All right. So Shifting gears a little bit here, one of the things that you talk about in the book, and I, well, I, I don't want to say one of the things because there's multiple things in it, but one of the sections, if you will, is all around tools for the catalyst, right? And uh, one of the tools that you mention is an action map. Talk to us a little bit about what an action map is and how a catalyst can put it to use. Absolutely. An action map is an externalized view of a statement of the vision that you're moving toward. How is it that you want the world to be different and better at a certain point? How is that different than how it exists today? And then beginning to look at some of those steps that are going to exist between now and our starting point today and moving toward that place. The role it it, it plays, the reason we like it as a tool is that vision action iteration, the catalyst formula that we mentioned before is so intuitive. It's so inside of us that often we can form a vision that we've connected through hearing things, being in meetings that we assume other people can see too. And so we start moving into action and iterating without taking the time to actually say it out loud and and help everyone sit around that vision and those steps that we might take together. And so it's a way that we can begin to really bring the mindfulness to play that Shannon's been talking about so that we can move fast, but with intentionality. So that we can think about the shit that we're breaking, but do it with steps in play and together with other people. So it kind of sounds like the action map has has some other tools built inside of it, like a way to to explain your vision to others. An action map would really be helpful for the catalyst in that situation. Um, where do things like mindfulness and rejuvenation fit into something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think we had this big epiphany. Uh, we, we've always known that you need to have your whole self in how you're visioning things. I met Tracy actually as my coach, and she didn't just help me figure out how to be a better innovator and catalyst at work. We talked about how to be a more present mom. We talked about how to find a partner and to put that into the vision of the things that I was working on. So we've always known that, but we had this one retreat last year where it was like this big epiphany for the whole group and it was largely women and it was like wait I'm not on the action map (laughs) and as we've just discussed like if we don't have that space and time for ourselves if we put it on paper and we make a commitment as catalysts we are damn well going to do it and we're going to probably do it faster than we even know that we can 
And so making sure that we literally build into our planning, what does it take to sustain my energy? What does that 360 future for myself look like? That's how we think about bringing rejuvenation into the action map. Why is rejuvenation so important? Rejuvenation is so important because we live in service of our mission. And to the exclusion of remembering to take care of ourselves. It's so endemic in our population that we have this expression that we talked about earlier, a a burnt out catalyst creates no change at all. It's important for me personally, because I have lived through so many cycles of burnout of varying depths, whether it's getting sick for a week, you know, every quarter or ending up in the hospital. Um, And with Tracy's research and what we now know, that level of burnout is avoidable. And so just as a starting point to say, you don't have to like make yourself suffer. You don't have to be a martyr for your cause. Like there are ways that you can do this with, without that level of self-sacrifice, but the rejuvenation on the other side also makes us a better change agent. There's so many ways that I could have more effectively created change by slowing down. The rejuvenation helps us slow down. It helps us with the sensing at the beginning of the vision. It helps us slow down to take others on the journey with us. It allows us to bring empathy for those around us because we can be challenging to be around sometimes, <laughs> even though we think we're awesome unicorns. It's, you know, we move fast and we can rub people the wrong way. So, you know, part of the rejuvenation is thinking about how we maintain our own energetic boundaries while still holding empathy for the other people in the room. Well, I just wanted to, uh, jumped something that you had mentioned there in your response, Shan, that sometimes catalysts can be a little hard to work with, right? We might come off as arrogant or impatient, um, you know, perfection seeking, things like that, right? And I think that it's important to remind those around us that uh, even though we think this way, we're, you know, we're still human, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when reading about this in the book, uh, you know, my mind went to Patrick Lencioni's The Ideal Team Player, right? And his humble, hungry, and smart metrics. Uh, and, you know, I also saw things in um, in the book that reminded me a lot of Dr. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of uh, Highly Effective People. And, you know, rejuvenation is much like, you know, sharpening the saw, right? Um, but what are some ways that you've found to work with others around you, humanize yourself a little bit and remind people that you're not out to cause trouble. Well, let's, let's parse that out. I I will talk from, you know, being in large organizations, leading big transformational change and lessons that I've learned there. Um, And then I think Tracy can respond to some of the other research about this. Um, It is true. And it was always hard to hear uh, because, you know, I would say to people, I was like, I wear my heart on my sleeve. Like I am just in service of making things better here. That was always, always my only mission. Um, And yet what you said is true. And I would get called like, you know, we wear the badge of troublemaker and disruptor as a badge of honor, but only because we've co-opted it because sometimes it's really painful. And so the lessons that I've learned are, um, 
you know, which we already talked about, bringing a whole bunch of empathy to the table for the people who are around you. I think, too, the curiosity that's also um, sort of connected with empathy, like what is the other person's lived experience, but also going back to in service of the change, like what are the mutual wins for all of the people um, that you need to, that you, that you're working with? When we look for sort of shared value and goal alignment, we can massively accelerate the change that needs to be created. Where I see catalysts get into some of the biggest trouble, uh, and it's a cautionary tale, is when they are like a dog with a bone where they have their vision and they probably have a lot of validity to it, but they have their vision and they just go around and, hey guys, hey guys, hey guys, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. And they don't stop and actually take in additional feedback or data or take the time the mindfulness to sense how the system is responding to that. Because look, if you've started off as we advocate for in the book with your five closest supporters or that safe group, and they're telling, you no, or the second wave even is telling, you no, you need to stop and listen. And so I think the most successful catalysts like Avon in the book are masters at going around on the sort of the sensing tours, the co-creation tours and making a shared vision for the organization that takes away a lot of the abrasion. I just love the particular sources that you pulled out, Josh, less less about the research, but it's funny. I literally just last week facilitated an executive team leveraging the book ideal team player. And you're right. There's just amazing lessons for us as catalysts to take from that book, from each, each of the pieces that you're talking about. And for us as catalysts, yeah, humility sometimes we get there fast. We don't, you know, always stop to bring people along. We can assume our idea is right. And so looking at at his perspectives on what it means to be humble and that smart element, right, which in that particular book is really talking about emotional intelligence and what does it mean to show up and pay attention. And we talk about emotional intelligence and empathy a lot in the book, and we place it in our container of rejuvenation. And we don't know for sure. My my sense in the early research is that many people who self-identify as catalysts probably have fairly high emotional intelligence. However, it's a big however. What I can say is that they speak to this as a data source, that a lot of catalysts can come in and read the room, can understand the actors in their system to help them think about change that they are beginning to see the need for. We often forget, and this is the break shit, we forget to leverage that empathy and emotional intelligence when we are in the process of making the change. Because again, we're so in service of the idea and we assume everyone else is too, that we may not take the time to read people's body language. We may not tune into the resistance that's that's actually evident if you're really present and paying attention. And this is where I love when you, you talk about um, Covey's seven habits, right? And you're right, he does, right? That seventh habit is all about kind of what we're talking about with rejuvenation. Um, there's so much overlap. And in fact, he pulls out a quote that I talk about a lot in class in the book of the distance between stimulus and response. And that's 100% it. That if we can practice mindfulness and allow ourselves to be present 
so that we're paying attention to a moment that is triggering us or might be triggering others so that we can pause and make a choice of response rather than reacting. Our ability to impact positive change amplifies incredibly. And this is where when catalysts tell us, okay, the things you're talking about, they might slow me down. Maybe, maybe in the microcosm of an hour or a day. But if I can help you minimize your resistance and minimize your burnout that takes you out of the game over the long term, you actually gained time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. That's really powerful stuff. I keep sitting here nodding to myself to everything that you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to give away all of the book, but another tool that you mentioned in the book is a network map. Yeah. And I wanted to touch on that real quickly because I thought that this was such an awesome idea. So walk us through what a network map is, how it works and how it, it plays right alongside the action map. Absolutely. This The network map um, does play right along the, the action map. And it it is part of what we talk about when we think about orchestration. And orchestration is the, world, the word we use in relationship to action of when I'm having to think about other actors helping create the change that I'm, I'm advocating for and moving toward. And a common mistake we can make as catalysts, especially catalyst leaders, is we often forget to orchestrate because we assume everybody else is already moving in the same direction as us. And so we provide these tools that, again, they're, they're a form of mindfulness to help slow us down so that we can be better at doing what we need to do the first time, right? And so where an action map is helping you plan action steps and be explicit with your uh, vision so that other people really understand what you're moving toward, a network map helps you think about who I need to really be paying attention to. And so if you're in an organizational context like a business or you're starting a business or maybe you're doing an initiative in your community, you want to take the time to think about not just an organizational hierarchy like we often you know, will think about, but who are the actors in your system that are the decision makers? Who are the actors in your system that naturally influence other people that I could leverage? Who are the actors in your system that maybe I think really are going to be resistors to the change that I want? Uh, or people that can be my endorsers and advocates? And when you get clear about seeing individuals that way, it really helps us pick and choose where we want to spend our time. Because otherwise, it just feels endless having to go out and touch so many different people. And we can be Come much more intentional in that approach. That's really powerful. So um, do the people on the network have to be catalysts or just people supportive to the catalyst? No, it's such a great question, though, Ali. For a network map, right, we're thinking about all the actors within a system in which we're going to be bringing change, even if that's a family unit, right? Because it's it's very rare that we are not working with other people as we create change, with the exception of, you know, something I'm totally doing internal to myself. And so it's mapping all the actors. And actually, I loved your question because typically Shannon and I don't even tell people to think about whether they're catalysts or not. Uh, I find that uh, I've been seeing a lot more catalysts the more that I've been <laughs> opening my eyes to it. So that's... Isn't that interesting? 
Well, I think there is an interesting, there is an interesting notion about how to form a strong team to support a, a strong catalytic team. And I don't mean catalyst team. Uh, cause that's sort of on the back end of your question. It's like, you know, what I learned from experience was I was trying to, uh, very intentionally cultivate lots of different types of diversity, cognitive diversity, all of the things I was trying to make sure I had, you know, introverts and extroverts, just, you know, the tendency for us to hire people like ourselves, if we're not really intentional. And I was trying to avoid that. I had a massive spreadsheet with all of the traits that I was looking for and all the, everything. And it was funny because like, I don't know, a, a couple of years in, we had done this um, Belbin team evaluation exercise. And what I realized that I had forgotten to hire for were, at least on my direct report team, were completer finishers. So I hadn't actually tracked the fact that I had, they weren't all catalysts, but they were, they had catalytic tendencies. So I do think there is a good intentionality, maybe not so much with the network map from the way that we normally think about it. But if you have the opportunity to construct your teams, whether they're matrix teams or virtual or whatever, um, not having too many catalysts on the team, or at least having some, some balancers. Tracy and I would be totally lost without our COO, Emily, because she keeps us on the tracks. It's a, an important balance. Um, so yeah. I guess uh, to create the perfect team, you would definitely need something like diversity. So what sort of skills and capabilities do you think would fit well with like an all-star catalytic team? Yeah, I mean, I think that that speaks directly to to what I was just talking about, which is thinking deeply. I don't know that I would actually set out to create an all star catalytic team is or a catalyst team. I might start to create a catalytic team, where there were a number of catalysts that were bringing different skill sets to the team, but then rounding it out with all of the support mechanisms that they need. Um, one of the things that we talk about that. Um, it's a role that M plays for us is like a translator. Uh, I have historically surrounded myself with, you know, people who are close to me, keeping the, 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 the train on the rails, um, but that can translate at speed with me because that's really important um, to have people who can sort of move at the speed of the catalyst, but then help to bring other people along, sense into the team when things aren't um, sort of landing or when, especially if you have a catalytic leader, they're moving too fast. I think more holistically, we just go back to though what it takes, whatever it takes to make a high functioning team is sort of turned up to 10 on a catalytic team because of the speed at which we're moving. So, you know, having clarity, having clear communication, having high trust, having psychological safety, like if those things aren't present as a team, and obviously cognitive diversity, if those things aren't present, you are very likely to go off the rails much faster and probably a much more visible explosion sort of away with a catalytic team. There's, I think what we often see, a question that we often get asked once catalysts self-identify, they often take stock of where they are, what's going on, especially like the more sort of deep understanding they ha have around what it means to be a catalyst. And the question quickly becomes like, am I in a place that's sustainable or the most supportive for me? And like Tracy and I can't answer that question for anyone but we do have some pretty routine questions like, is your boss your supporter or do you have a supporter in the organization? Can you tell if there's psychological safety and what does that look like? Can you bring divergent thinking and get decent responses from the organization? 
Um, what we know and what, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing uh, sort of coming out is we need to put the humans sort of back into how we think about organizational structures. And that is particularly important because catalysts sort of they, they live in high risk roles in a way. So if you think about other roles where we're thinking about like the physical safety of people who are climbing telephone poles or, you know, firefighters, you would think about their physical safety because it's endemic to their job. And catalysts are often invited into high risk roles because they are asked to be creating change. And just like you would want your fire uh, your firefighter to have the right tools for the job so that they stayed safe. We don't think about that for the roles of catalysts and organizations. So I think we do have a failure of leadership for, you know, for creating high, highly successful catalytic teams. Um, but we're not abdicating responsibility for the catalysts either. As we talked about earlier, like we have to own our own stuff and bring humility, compassion, and empathy. I think that we would be doing a disservice to everyone listening to this podcast. If we, didn't talk about catalysts today working individually or within groups during this whole COVID-19 pandemic. Um, talk to us just a little bit about how life is a little bit different for you today as, as catalysts and, and the teams that you work with. And you know, how do you continue to collaborate with one another and rejuvenate together? I am very thankful for this question because um, as this year has unfolded week by week, the level of cognitive and emotional load that we have all had to bear as humans is almost unbearable. And isolation is a thing that catalysts feel. It's almost one of sort of the negative sort of defining aspects. It's like we think about the common consequences of being a catalyst and isolation is a big one. And the sort of universal sense of isolation that we're all feeling is profound. Having worked in telecommunications companies for a long time, I was often asked if why can't we just use the technology to run these innovation workshops or do your design sprints or whatever? And my common comeback was like, you just can't get the deep level of connection and authenticity that you need when you're not face to face. I still think that that's true. And I think we have had to learn how to cultivate creating space virtually in a way that is filling deep human needs. Now, I think the individuals have started to show up differently because we all are now, you know, before if I had asked someone to carve out two days for an innovation workshop, they wouldn't have mm -hmm. had necessarily the deep need for human connection. And so it would have been really easy to phone it in and multitask and all of that stuff. Because we are coming with these deep human needs to connect now, people are showing up differently. Like you see people's kids, you see their homes, you see their dogs and, um, so I think that's the the starting position from just so much trauma that we're experiencing collectively is an interesting thing to think about. And then when you create an intentionally curated space for people to be vulnerable and deeply connect, when you create that safety, which is what we do with, you know, our online offerings like Essentials for Catalyst. In those courses, of course, we get feedback and Trace and I are big believers that the content is useful and helpful and all of that stuff. But universally, what we hear is 
that connection made my day, my week, my month. I need to connect with more mm-hmm. catalysts. Um, and as, as Tracy mentioned earlier, even in our pre-COVID world, when catalysts would come to retreats, the level of friction that was removed and the speed and the openness at which they all operate, it does have this like shiny, effervescent quality to it that's hard to describe. But now it's needed so much more. And so I think that's one of the things that we were lucky to have pivoted into actually before COVID. And we see a really deep need for moving forward. Like Shannon, I'm, I'm so grateful for this question. One of the key things in working with teams right now that is missing for us in the virtual world are the water cooler moments. Mm-hmm. We are missing out on knowing what's happening in people's personal lives. And it doesn't matter what book or article or blog post you read trust between teammates is critical and trust is foundationally built because we know one another personally. And so in this world of scripted time that has agendas, we're not checking in on how people's kids are, on on what your highs and lows are. And it's, it's destructive, frankly, in team environments that I'm seeing. And so when you say, you know, you ask the question, how do, how do we help teams right now? If you are a leader, my plea to you is team health is more important than ever. So one-on-one as a leader, be checking in with your people on their lives, not just on their goals. How are they doing as people? And as a team leader, what are you building in for that connection time across your people? So in, you know, virtual facilitated workshops, I literally start with throwing people into breakout groups, not with something scripted, but highs and lows, rose and thorn. How are you? What's going well? What's not? It's so critical. And a second big component of this is what are you doing as a leader to help your organizations and people have fun? And while a Zoom happy hour was wonderful and novel, at the beginning of us all being at home, it's exhausting because we don't know what we're doing, right? So we do have to have new ways that we help our team members connect and have fun. And it does take organization. And if you can do that as a leader, wonderful. And if you can't, I would suggest find facilitators that can help you. Uh, It is worth the time and money because the destruction is, is real and lasting if we're not paying attention to these things. One final piece just to jump in. We start every event, webinar, et cetera, with some type of a mindfulness moment. And we do that because we all have Zoom fatigue. We do that because we don't know how to navigate right now the boundaries between all of the sort of in-between spaces. And so every once in a while, just like getting back in your body, leaving behind all the chaos that went before, just being fully present so that we can lean into those connections because it's all we have right now is really important. Thank you both for that, that answer. That's really insightful. And yeah, one of the questions, I guess that came to mind, um, and this is really just for, for listeners that might be looking for some creative new ideas, right? What are some of the ways that you've seen organizations and groups and teams getting creative with the way that they can, 
rejuvenate together. Uh, you know, you'd mentioned the, the, the happy hours, right? The, the virtual happy hours, but now th- those have almost kind of become, uh, I don't know, uncomfortable, if you will, or, yes. right. <laughs> yes. And it's like, okay, we're all sitting here looking at each other, drinking a glass of wine. Now what? We're, Cause yeah. we, we're, we're literally, we're literally doing this all day already just without the wine. Now yep. we have wine and we're not, not talking about work, but, um, so well, I guess what are some other creative ways that uh, you are finding leaders and organizations to you know, have some fun and, and, you know, still maintain safe social distances and, and uh, you know, meet all the requirements of this new COVID world that we're living in? Absolutely. And even as you say the social distances, it's, it has been interesting because I, I do have some leaders that I work with that will kind of float to the team. Hey, would you all be open to getting together in person, you know, outside social distanced if, the, you know, if they're in the, the Bay Area in, in California, for example, the weather usually will allow even in, moving into fall. And I do find that hard, especially for team members who would like to say no uh maybe don't feel like they can or their spouse would like to say no and so it's it's hard it's hard to suggest that even though it comes with really good intentions and so where i see it helping you know is acknowledging that maybe we want to stay in an online world and starting with setting the goal right saying out loud that an explicit goal for us is to actually know about one another's lives or is to have fun And this goes back to almost Shannon and I talking about the action map and visioning and making sure that you're in the vision. Sometimes those seem so obvious that we forget to say them out loud, right? So I would start with, what is it that you want your team to be feeling in this day and age? Mm. And once you've set that goal, you can, as a team, brainstorm what are some ways that we can build this in. Or, you know, like I said, I, Shannon and I facilitate these. And so I, I play online games all the time. They're super silly and fun. And it depends on kind of the goals of our session. One the other day when I told you we were facilitating the ideal team player. Building trust across a team is a, an executive team that has new members was a high goal. And so one of the games we played was simply one called Common Threads. I throw people into a breakout room. They have a very limited amount of time and they have to come up with five to 10 things that every single one of them has in common in that group. Hmm. And you have to get silly and creative and you laugh and you laugh and you learn things about people like, you know, we all wear shoes to, oh my gosh, all of us went to the same university and we had no idea. Right. And so it's building trust, but it's it's not work focused and it's a way to have fun. And you can Google online. There's all kinds of wonderful virtual environment online games that you can bring into your team. I'd say one final thing that catalysts don't do enough of that is a great thing for us to do as a team because it's, you know, it's dark days. It's tough is also making sure that we focus on our successes big and small, like, Hey, we just had six months of virtual, you know, team things. And we didn't think that we could, if you had asked us that in February, we would have said we'd never could have functioned as a team, but Hey, we did it. So we focus on, you know, making sure that we bring the small and big celebrations on a regular routine together. Um, because there's just not enough of that in the world right now. I love it. So Allie and I are part of the same Catalyst Network, and and I'm sure that you are probably seeing pockets of Catalyst Networks popping up all around the world. So if someone's listening that 
uh, is not part of a catalyst network currently and might be interested in starting their own catalyst network within their company, where would they begin? Another great question. Thank you for that, Josh. Allie mentioned earlier that she's beginning to see catalysts everywhere, right? This is something that happens that once we have named our way of being, we do tend to be able to say, oh my gosh, that person, yeah, they're kind of always a fire starter. They're, they're a game changer too. So as you're thinking about building your own network, I would start by looking around you to see who stands out and begin to have conversations about this with them. I talked about earlier that we see when we get catalysts together, there's this vibrational hum. There's this like feeling that our shackles have fallen off. And so I would start by setting up time with those people, maybe getting a few of you together and talking about if it's not a sponsored event from the highest above, if it's more, you know, grassroots, what are some of the goals that you want to set as a group? Is it just come together and brainstorm at the beginning of projects or is it having some regular event or even coming up with some ask that you have for the organization? Shannon and I really see Catalyst coming together as an activity of rejuvenation itself. It is so filling. And I'd love to hear if you experience this, Ali and Josh, we see that Catalysts really walk away saying I was given energy by being together with Catalysts. And so just starting by having some time with Catalysts is the starting point. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. After meeting uh, with a good chunk of Catalysts, it certainly feels like I've stuck my finger right on an electric fence and I'm just buzzing with energy for the rest of the day. Right? It's, totally. it's powerful and it's insane. Um, but some people might not have the resources to build their own network. So is there a bigger network out there that already exists that someone can join? Oh, absolutely. And this is at the heart of what Shannon and I are building. We really see ourselves as champions of catalysts. And one of the biggest needs that we know exist is exactly what you're talking about, is having a place for catalysts to come and have a home and be with other catalysts. So we have an online network called the Galaxy Catalyst Galaxy that you can join and come and we have activities all the time, events that you can join like speed networking and book clubs. We give a talk every month on our topic of the month so you can easily join in and be part of places that are scripted so you don't have to kind of awkwardly stare at each other. Or you can come and post and ask for help and get some creative ideas. So there's wonderful ways to jump into the galaxy and be with your fellow catalysts right away. That's incredible. Where can someone find more information about that? Yes, go to our website right now at catalystconstellations.com. Uh, from all of your efforts with creating all of this catalyst environments and networks, you've created that book, Move Fast, Break Shit, Burnout. When does it come out and how can someone get a copy? October 13th, 2020. It's a Tuesday. It'll be posted up on Amazon. I am bursting with excitement. Cannot wait. And we'll have an amazing book launch celebration where we will be celebrating a bunch of the catalysts around the world. So we hope you guys will join us for that too. Allie and Josh, we hope you'll be there. Absolutely. I, I'm looking forward to it. And I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of the book. Uh, I, I read through it in a week. It's an easy read, uh, but it's packed just 
absolutely packed with a lot of really great information, perspectives, tools, recommendations, right? And the entire time I was reading it, I'm, I'm highlighting sections, I'm, I'm creating notes off to the side. A, a lot of actually the questions from uh, the, this discussion today are, are fed directly from that book. So I can't recommend it enough. Uh, I, we're we're going to post a link to Catalyst Constellations uh, in with the description for this podcast. Uh, and then we'll certainly add a link to the book on Amazon once it's available October 13th. Thank you so much, Ali and Josh, for giving us the honor of being part of your first episode of Spark Plug. It was super fun. Indeed. And to the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're interested in joining our global Catalyst movement, you can learn more at our website at catalystconstellations.com. And be sure to check out our new book, Move Fast, Break Shit, Burn Out, on Amazon. Thanks again. 